So we are back in Romans chapter 1. And it's been a, just a very good day for both of us to be with you. And also the afternoon and the lunch. And it was a good too. But the fellowship and the sharing and uh, the burdens and the hopes. and uh, We will go back to Winston uh, very refreshed and uh, encouraged. I heard from Rome today, and they had a very good meeting too. Armando is handling the scripture while we're gone, and uh, they were encouraged. Uh, I probably shared 95% of what happens in my life with him. Not everything, but but most of what happens in my life I share with him. Confidential things, or letters, or struggles, or... We all need a uh, a good man friend, men. Uh, and so, uh, oftentimes with Amanda, we talk about the need of true friendship in the church. And certainly the fact that we attend the same place of worship does not mean that a true friendship is created. Uh, friendship is uh, something different. It takes an effort to to open up, to seek out one another, and to talk, to share, to walk together. There's so little of that. <laughs> so many folks that attend church live lonely lives, and nobody ever visits or spends time. And um, so let us hold the true character of friendship as something really valuable. That's why I think Paul also stress the hospitality in our home ought to be opened and uh, shared and to the common goal to visit to call each other and um, so thank you for your hospitality <laughs> and uh, but we are back in Romans and And what a wonderful scripture this is to help us. Um, Yes, the Christian uh, certainly ought to be a person that uh, is interested in history. Not for history's sake, but uh, because it really, history is God's doing. (laughs) It is a theater that he has opened, uh, a story that he has started. And and also history, as we know, as uh, the Bible is history. The history of man, but also the history of God. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we saw this morning how important it is to be able to somehow to have an idea of what's happened in the past, to be able to understand the present, especially as we see our society collapse. Uh, what are the causes? What, what is happening? How should I go about understanding what's taking place? And uh, we saw how uh, the history of our civilization today, um, there's a lot to think about how it started, the the foundation, uh, the false foundation that were placed to build this modern world, 
and uh, what a delusion it is. In fact, when when they use today the post the word postmodern is in itself an admission of a failure. Uh, the modern project has failed, and. Uh, but we saw how uh, alarming in the situation and how uh, with what alarm should people look and consider and see what is happening. Uh, where shall we find answers? We, we saw that history can be seen most certainly as a, a sequence of civilizations that have come and gone, that have uh, arisen, that have developed, reached a climax, a, uh, a summit of development and progress, and then slowly but surely decayed and died. No civilization survived from antiquity. Uh, there was always a collapsing, a destruction. Um, why is that? Uh, certainly our civilization is not an exception. Uh, it's, it's living a very slow agony that we saw it's over a hundred years old. <laughs> but we are, when we speak of civilizations, we speak of centuries. We don't speak of generations. You speak of centuries. And so, you know, basically what we saw is this ideologically has been a century in the making, in the 1700s. Then a century in uh, the social fabric and the development from a social, economic, level, the 1800s, and then a century, uh, the, the downfall, the decline, the decay. And we're just living in the afterglow. We're living in, um, in towards the end of, of our civilization. So you and I must understand, <laughs> we, we are living in, in a time of the death of our civilization. That's why, when you look around, things are the way they are. And um, so, um, we also saw why we should uh, go to the Scripture to understand what's going on. It is the Word of God. It is um, uh, the, the, the revelation of God takes place in history. The Bible is built in, in, in many ways on history. Uh, its historical narrative goes all, uh, all through, all through it. And uh, it covers all the ancient civilizations and uh, it specifically speaks concerning them, uh, highlighting the causes of their declension and death. So there will be much to draw from the historical and prophetic books of the Bible. This is a huge <laughs> theme for sure. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel will be, uh, Daniel would be books that are extremely important uh, to understand. And, um, and also, however, uh, we saw how that there are very important chapters in the Bible that can really help us to kind of wrap it all up because they they kind of concentrate and summarize what we have been seeing as the causes of the rise and fall 
of nations or civilizations. We consider just very vaguely Genesis chapter 1, 2, 3, but then especially we focused on Romans 1. We had a brief overview of Romans. We kind of dissected the book in its basic outline, focusing and focusing and focusing near and near to our subject. And then already this morning we covered a lot of ground, uh, I, I think, uh, but we already saw what Paul actually says uh, very generally from, of course, chapter 1, from verse 18 through verse 31. And uh, again, we may have read this passage <laughs> dozens of times, perhaps hundreds of times in our lifetime. Uh, but as we were saying today, we must always ask um, to have fresh eyes. And this is, I think, has been my constant request through the years um, that. And I think Martin Lowe Jones has been a good influence on me in this regard. You know, uh, one thing that always always appreciated was uh, his uh, effort to relate the theme, the biblical theme, to the condition of the world today. It was Martin Lowe Jones was was never uh, he never preached this sort of individualistic, self-focused religion. It, will, it always had a universal sweep and uh, understanding of things. So, because the individual must be understood in the light of the community, the collectivity, or and the the the, the community must be, and then the community must be take account also the individuality. And so, um, and I think. Uh, we can um, better appreciate the message of the Bible when we are are able to relate it to our life today, individually, family-wise, church-wise, but also nationally, internationally, what is happening. And so, just by reading this, we can see how broad was the outlook of the Apostle Paul. Uh, he's basically talking about the world as he saw it in his own age. This is the Roman civilization 2,000 years ago. But what a, a view, what a panoramic view he had. And so my encouragement to my fellow believers in Italy is to, in their outlook, not to be let me allow me the word too provincial, too limited in their little area, <laughs> Italy, uh, but to have to lift up their eyes and see God's moving in the world as it is, and also America. You know, uh, when we think about it, what is one of the basic errors that many people are committing today? Well, they don't know European history. Because if they would know European history, they would not want to propose for America the ideologies that have led Europe to disaster. They would not do that. But there's so much ignorance today of history. And so the history of America must be related to European history. 
you speak of the founding fathers, but your founding fathers were pilgrims <laughs> that came from Europe. <laughs> and so the two continents are tied together um, and must be understood um, together in history. Uh, that's the effort I try to make when I preach here. I'm not in Italy, I'm in America. <laughs> so I need to switch a little bit and take into account uh, where I am and whom I'm speaking to. Um, but we can see uh, Paul's understanding of history. And this is not just Paul. When we consider the prophets, what a view they had of things. Broad, broad. And so... Uh, my, I remember the first time I came to the States, it was 1984, and I was 17 years old at the time, came with my wife's parents to, to visit America. I had just been converted, and, uh, and people asked me, do y'all have refrigerators in Italy? <laughs> in Italy? And just like people knew nothing of where I came from, and my country is a modern country, you know, and uh, so we, we need to be interested uh, in the continents, in the world, and understand our country in the light of, of, the con of, of what's happening in the world. Uh, the prophets did that. The Bible is certainly a, has this broad universal vision. The Apostle Paul had it. And that's why he can analyze it with the grace of God, the revelation of God, and help us to understand why our present day uh, civilization is collapsing. And so, Romans 18, what we want to do today, this evening, is to go through this again in a more in-depth way and understand the correlation of all these four phases that we talked about today. And... Um, So, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So, really, this first verse um, is like a, a theme verse. <laughs> its purpose is to tell us what Paul is going to speak about um, in the uh, immediate verses that will follow. The basic statement of Paul is that men need salvation because the wrath of God is upon mankind, is being revealed. God's wrath is a reality. And notice that Paul begins when he... he um, when, when he wants to make his message urgent on, on you know, men and women, he, he places the reality of the wrath of God at the, almost at the very beginning of his message. Now, I say almost because I don't believe we need to begin with the wrath of God. No. <laughs> the Bible does not begin with the wrath of God. The Bible begins with the love of God as he created the universe. And he unleashed 
you know, the, the magnitude of his love, of his mercy, of his goodness, of his generosity in creation. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we, the wrath of God can never be understood if we just preach it in terms of broken commandments. Since you lied, the wrath of God is upon you. Damn you, you know. That, that's not gospel preaching. That's legalism, destructive legalism that can only instill fear in those who hear you. Notice the first thing that really, as Paul delineates his message is, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So you see, his first statement is a statement of this amazing salvation that God is, is desirous to extend to us in Christ. The message of the Bible must first reveal the goodness of God, the generosity of God, the love of God, whether as creator or savior. Why? Because it's only then that the wrath of God can be understood. The wrath of God against mankind can only be understood on the background of man's refusal of God's love. Unless we make God's love clear at the very beginning, the wrath of God cannot be understood. Uh, God has made himself known, Paul says. He has created us. He gave us life. (laughs) How should have men reacted to the revelation of the goodness of God as creator? Well, we know from the Psalms. How many Psalms are Psalms of uh, celebration and glorification of God because he created all things. He spoke and things existed. You know, magnify the Lord because he's creator. We, men should have always reacted in this way to God's revelation, but he has not. He has not. God is he to whom we owe everything we are and everything we have. That's why Paul later on will specify this. Uh, of course, I'm speaking of verse 21. But let us go back to verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The question can be asked, uh, is God's love eternal? Yes. God's love has always been (laughs) and always will be. The Lord Jesus says, glorify me uh, uh, beside you where I was uh, before the world was created. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. So there is an eternal love that was shared, that has been shared in the realm of the Trinity throughout eternity. But let us ask the question, what about God's wrath? Is God's wrath eternal? 
Has God's wrath always, always been? No. God's wrath has arisen. With what? Against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. There would have never been a manifestation of God's wrath if evil had not been embraced by the angelic and in the human realms. But since we have embraced that as a reaction of God, then God becomes wrathful. Because we need to remember one thing for sure. When we talk about God, we're talking about infinities. <laughs> infinities. Infinite is His love, but infinite is also His wrath against evil. That, that needs to be clear. <laughs> that needs to be clear. But wrath has not been eternal in the heart of God. Wrath has arisen, has historically arisen, <laughs> in time has arisen, in the, in the moment in time, when angels rebelled and men and, um, and humankind rebelled against it. Uh, so, God's wrath is never revealed against mankind just because we are mankind. But Paul says it is against the ungodliness and unrighteousness yeah. of men. It is men as sinners. And as rebels, that God's wrath is, uh, you know, against. Um, and the second thing we notice that's so important, that there is a sequence already in this text against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. These two words there, ungodliness and unrighteousness, they are not put in that sequence by chance. <laughs> Ungodliness has to do with God, with the refusal of God. It means to be without love for God. And when God sees no love for Him, no appreciation for Him, but complete disregard, that's when His wrath is awoken. Uh, because that's a crime. It is a moral crime. It's the highest crime. And then he speaks unrighteousness. That's the, the you know, despising of God's laws, of God's commandments, of God's moral values. And this order is always followed by the Apostle Paul, not only in, in the in matter of terms, but also concepts. That is, the refusal of God, ungodliness, always precedes unrighteousness, the uh, rejection of His commandments. First God, and then His commandments. Not the other way around. <laughs> in fact, that's exactly the pattern that He follows in the verses, you know, succeeding uh, verse um, 18, so 19 on. That's exactly the pattern. When He says, because... That's exactly one, one of the things that he will do. He will first address the issue of ungodliness. Man's rejection of God. And then, this will go from verse 19 all the way to verse 23. 
And then, from verse 24 on, he will address the issue of unrighteousness. The, uh, the breaking, the violating of God's moral values. Uh, of course, we also notice that Paul says, unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Men are suppressing the truth. Um, well, what is the truth they're suppressing? As we indicated this morning, this is spelled out from verse 19 through um, 21. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So, notice again, um, this is the basic point <laughs> upon which Paul builds his whole message. There is a revelation of God. God has made himself known. Verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So, what may be known of God may be known of God because He has revealed it. So God cannot be known by human investigation, by human searching. God can only be known if He, and to the extent uh, with, He will reveal Himself. So it's only by God's revelation that He can be known. The revelation must come from Him. He made Himself known. So, the, the, the knowledge of God is not a human accomplishment that some very highly intelligent creatures we call philosophers can achieve by human reasoning. And it's not a human achievement. It is the gift of God. God has made Himself known. And notice, Paul says, God is... the. What may be known of God is manifest. Paul will uh, very much here emphasize the um, clarity <laughs> of the revelation of God. This is not something enigmatic. This is not something unclear. This is not something nebulous. This is something very clear. He made himself known and his knowledge is manifest. Uh, how is manifest. Verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen. See, so since God has created the universe, His invisible qualities, His invisible attributes are clearly, see, clearly seen. Not nebulous, not enigmatic, but clearly, people can clearly see the invisible attributes of God. What are they? Well, Paul says, being understood. So, 
Paul doesn't say they may be understood if you think about it. No. Paul says they are being understood by the things that are made. That is, is eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. So, notice that Paul is not speaking of eventualities. God revealed himself through creation. And then if people think, take the time to think about this, they may find out about God. They may discover that God exists. Paul doesn't say that. Paul says, verse, again, uh, 20, Since the creation of the world is invisible, attributes are clearly seen, being understood. Doesn't say they may may be clearly seen, but that they are clearly seen, and that they are being understood, not that they may be understood. In other words, Paul says that God's manifestation of Himself, the revelation of Himself, has come through His creation, and that revelation of Himself has been active since the beginning of the universe and continues to be. So much so that Paul says, since the creation of the world, they are clearly, they are now, also now, clearly seen. And they are also now being understood. It's like God continues to reveal Himself through creation. Is, is the sky ever the same? No. Are sunset ever the same? No. God is, according to Psalm 104, and many other scriptures, God is always actively involved in the universe. What does Christ say about flowers? That, that every flower that was ever, <laughs> that ever existed was actually dressed by God. To look just the way it does. It didn't say just the flowers back in Adam's days. But the flowers at Christ's days. (laughs) So the Bible always speaks of God as continually being engaged in creation to make himself known. (laughs) Through the rain and the sunshine and the sunset and the sunrises and, and through the birds and and, and everything that happens in this life that is beautiful, that is good, that is light, that is life, that is love, that is truth. Um, and also, as Paul very evidently says here, this manifestation of revelation is universal. No one is exempted. And notice also another thing that's very important. In verse 19, actually Paul said, it's manifest in them. Manifest in them. So, somehow Paul is speaking actually of two things here. He will speak more of the inward in chapter 2 when he speaks of man's conscience. But his concepts begin to take shape even here. So, what Paul is saying is there is a manifestation or revelation of God outside of men in the world around him. (laughs) And there's also a revelation of God inside of man through his conscience, the consciousness of God, 
God is. God exists. So much so that men cannot be conscious of being without being conscious that God is. That God is. Everybody knows this. Deep down inside. Everybody knows this. So it's like God placed two witnesses. One outside that we can see with our eyes. Creation. And we see God. God. But he also placed a witness inside of our soul. In our conscience. This is is grand. (laughs) This is like a shout. (laughs) The one inside is like a whisper. Even though that too can shout sometimes. God is. And, and our conscience, human conscience, is placed in the middle of this. This is speaking to us from the outside. This is speaking to us from the inside. They both attest the same thing. God is the one who's made everything, including you. You need to glorify Him because you owe Him everything that you are and everything that you have. So, the point that Paul is making here as he speaks about this, the first phase of the collapsing of men's society or civilization, he's building on this, you see. He's building on this. And uh, Paul's point is that the revelation, the knowledge of God's existence um, takes place within the conscience of every human being apart from what they do with it. The revelation of God reaches His purpose because every man and woman is made aware that he is. Man may try to escape it, but he sees and he knows. She may try to hide, but she sees, she feels, she knows. So, the success of this revelation does not depend on man's reaction. Man can refuse it, but he knows God is. So, in reality, there are no true atheists. Uh, Men cannot get rid of the sense of God, the question of God. I remember an uncle of mine, uh, he's no longer with us, but uh, he was in the hospital and went to visit him. And he made fun of God during the first visit. And then... Uh, went to visit him again a couple of months later when he was dying and he was no longer making fun of God then uh, man knows man knows uh, and man fears God scared of God he has a horror, a terror that can be, as Paul says suffocated that can be gagged uh, we can try to silence it but it will arise. It's one of these subconscious <laughs> things that we're talking about this morning. So, Paul says that the end result of this is that they are without excuse. The end of verse 20. 
They are without excuse. And notice how soon this is stated. So men and women everywhere they are in the world are already without excuse. Because even though they know that God exists, look, they are without excuse because, verse 21, although they knew God, that is, they knew that God, He was creator of the universe, and they owed everything to Him. Even though they knew this, they did not glorify Him as God. They did not say, I acknowledge you. You're, you're the one who created all things. How great is thy name all over the earth. How good, how generous, how kind. They did not glorify in God this way. They had the knowledge sufficient to do that. Always remember that there is no responsibility without knowledge. <laughs> so man is responsible because he's been informed. <laughs> And that information, you see, because also they, although they knew, you see, knowledge, knowledge, although they knew, they realized it, yet they did not acknowledge Him. Nor were they thankful. That word is so important, thankful. Why? <laughs> because it underscores the rejection of what? The generosity and the goodness of God. It's to say, thank you, thank you, thank you. Because if I exist, it's because of you. Because if I have two eyes and I'm not blind, it's because of you. If I have a heart that beats, it's because of you. See, so, when, when, when we're speaking of this, the revelation of God's wrath can only be understood if we first underscore the love of God, the goodness of God, as He gave unconditionally to us, just out of His mere goodness. And in the moment that goodness is refused, we don't even say thank you, let alone worshiping Him for who He is. Then we become without justification. We have no justification for what we do, for our evil. Of course, in the moment Paul says, because although they knew God, that did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. Mind you, this is the first sin that Paul speaks about here. God's revelation of Himself through creation and conscience, universal, constant, day and night, and then Man's guilt because of the rejection of this very clear, undeniable revelation of God. And this is the first step towards this uh, collapsing of you know, society. This is where it begins, the rejection of God. Paul will very quickly uh, come to verses where he will speak of this social degeneration but it begins here. It begins at this point. This is the first phase. Uh, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now notice the most immediate consequence of the re rejection of God 
is a darkened mind. By rejecting, rejecting God, man is no longer able to have a healthy mind. The reasons correctly uh, concerning reality. He, he loses that ability. Why? Because he's rejected God. You cannot interpret life correctly if you reject God. Uh, also, that statement became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened, is explained by the verses that immediately follow, which lead to the next phase of this decline, declension, degeneration. What's the second phase? Well, the first phase we called a radical refusal of God. Verse 21. And the second phase is a uh, vicious idolatry, degraded uh, idolatry. Professing to be wise, they became fools. This is very strong. <laughs> uh, that man identifies the rejection of God with wisdom. I'm wise, I'm intelligent, I'm smart, I'm clever because I'm an atheist. This has not come about today. <laughs> this is not modern. This was taking place all the way back then. Uh, man has always tried to justify his refusal of God uh, in terms of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. I can't be a Christian. I study in the university. You know, that's what they say. But they always spoke like that. And but Paul says, verse 23 he just said, even though they professed to be wise, they became fools. How did Paul know? Because of what follows. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible men and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Oh. Um, Well, this is how Paul speaks of the second phase. Uh, so, the fabrication of idols. Now, idolatry, a, a very large theme in the Bible. And it's one of the most important themes of the Bible. Uh, and the reason why, Paul explains to us here. Let us enter a little bit into uh, his thoughts. Uh, look how he explains... The origin of idolatry. Idolatry, notice, comes after the denial of God. Man first denies God, and then he builds himself godlike forms and images. What a strange way to behave. Why would he do that? It's like man says, You're not divine. This little thing is divine. This plant, this tree, this rock, this totem, that's, that's you know, divine. Uh, but Paul says, how do we explain that contorted uh, you know, reality of idolatry? And let me underscore, mind you, that idolatry 
has been the characteristic of all civilizations of antiquity. From the old Mesopotamian civilizations, the Assyrians worshipped idols, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. This has been a worldwide hallucination. Uh, man has, has called God's uh, uh, images and uh, idols of all sorts, as Paul says here. Uh, he speaks of images made in, uh, to look like men or birds or four-footed animals or creeping things. What a strange contorted you know, degenerate way of thinking. You call that wise wisdom. But that's exactly what happened. And all history is there to tell us. Well, how do we explain this, this universal hallucination? Well, they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image. They didn't just make an image. Why did they build the image? Well, they did it to change the glory of the uncorruptible God. So, the, uh, the, the, the ultimate purpose for the making of the idol is somehow to obscure the glory of God. The glory of God, the, the, <laughs> the eternal wisdom, the eternal power that created the universe. Of, of, of which every human being is aware. Man finds the reality of the God that created the cosmos something terrifying. And because man is terrified at the very thought of considering the existence of the God who has created the galaxies, he does not want to look at that. He does not want to even consider that. And to, but at the same time, he has this sense of the divine inside himself. The divine exists. So, what he does, he, he does not want to look at the glory, he does not want to consider the glory, because the glory of God makes man look ridiculously small and insignificant. We would say microscopic, you know. Whereas we want to appear very big, gigantic. We are very important. We want to feel like that. But in the presence of the, of the God, the creator of the universe, well, we're just about nothing. And so this, the glory of God reduces men to dust. And because man does not want to be reduced to dust and be humbled, because man has become proud, then he builds idols to say, uh, he's going to put the idol before himself and God, so that God may disappear from his sight, and he's going to worship the idol now. Of course, think of the idols of the Greeks. You know, they had wives and concubines, and some were homosexuals, and so, the, the idols that men built were not able to um, cause men, within men, a, a moral crisis. Men could worship the idol and go completely undisturbed 
on with his life. No problem at all. But you cannot do that with the God of the Bible. We have a terrific example of this in Scripture. Think of Exodus chapter 32. Uh, You remember what happened there as Moses came down from the mountain. And we have Exodus 20, when God reveals himself to Israel by giving the Ten Commandments, Israel is shaken by the glory of God on Mount Sinai. You remember? They fall to the ground. They go and hide behind the rocks. (laughs) Uh, But what do they do when they create the golden calf? A few days later, they have a party. Uh, The word that's used there is actually very heavy. It means like an an orgy-like party. They could do that around the golden calf. But you cannot have an orgy before the God of heaven. You don't feel like doing that when you have a sense of his existence. And that's exactly the problem. In fact, Paul says the man builds idols, uh, change the glory of God, the glory of the incorruptible God, into an image made like corruptible man. So he tried to change what the one who cannot be changed <laughs> because the glory of God uh, was something the man could not put up with. He could not behold. He did not want to behold. So in a sense, what Paul is saying is that uh, the fabrication of idols, idolatry, arose in mankind as a reaction to the knowledge of God. Or better, a reaction to a consequence of the refusal of man. As man refuses God, he must build idols. Because he just cannot live nakedly, you know, with the knowledge of God. He must have another idol to replace him. Because the substitute that you put in the place of God helps you to forget God. It's like uh, some people um, sometimes get into when when they a relation a sentimental relationship is broken. You know they they initiate another relationship to try to forget the other person, and that's exactly in a, in a certain sense what, what happens here. The idols is used to uh, substitute God, to do away with the glory of God, and so go on living as man wants to live. So this is the sequence. And as you can see, it's not just a matter of being sequential, but they are consequential. (laughs) Idolatry follows the rejection of God. First the rejection of God, than the making of idols. And and the more God is rejected, the more idols are built. Of course, the, ima- the images of, of the, the idols change. Uh, uh, but their function does not change. Their function does not change. And then, this is the second phase. And look at... Again, what Paul says, 
in verse 24. Therefore, and here we enter into the third phase that we have, uh, you know, titled uh, reckless immorality. Reckless immorality. Therefore, therefore what? It's uh, if Paul is saying like, because mankind rejected God, and because God replaced God with filthy, corruptible idols, therefore, see the consequential aspect of it, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged, again, the truth of God, the truth of God, for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Again, Paul was said, for this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, receiving themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. Now, this this is the third time. Uh, And notice again, uh, for three times, Paul says, God gave them up. God gave them over to. And it's always consequential as a consequence of what they've done before. Verse 24, therefore, God also gave them up. Look at verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Look at verse 28. Even as they did not retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over. See, there's a consequence. So, what is, what is Paul saying here is that there is... This this third phase in which man is given over to the sinful passions that he has in his nature, that takes place when exactly? Well, that takes place gradually. Gradually, because Paul speaks of this three times, he repeats it. As man becomes more, as man refuses God more, as man builds even more idols, then God slowly but surely withdraws. He withdraws. He withdraws from our life, from our world. And when God lifts up um, uh, uh, these uh, elements that retain uh, uh, or keep under control man's passions, then the lusts that are in the hearts of men and women, Paul calls them vile passions, Paul calls them uncleanness, or Paul calls it a debased mind, then these things that are within the nature of men are allowed to come up. Uh, So there is a restraining work that God does. We we do not see it. But these vile passions are within the nature of, of man.
if they do not just uh, flood the whole society, it's only because God is restraining them by His grace. Through different means He does that. But as men refuse God and replace Him with idols, then God slowly but surely withdraws from society and He abandons men and women over by lifting up these restraints so that their, their evil can be manifested. Uh, so this is where we find that God punishes our sin by making us taste the consequences of sin. He gives us over. You want to live without me, against me? Go on. I'll let you be what you are capable of. And when we see this flooding of, of immorality, it means that God is lifting up these restraints as a judgment on the nation or a judgment on the civilization. And when he does that, that is a very terrible thing. Uh, the, see, the, the greatest judgment of God is not when, when he makes terrible things happen to shake us. <laughs> the most terrible judgment of God is when he withdraws and does nothing as we sink into hell. That's the most terrible thing. When, when he abandons us to, to our own foolishness and rebellion. That's how we understand history. It, it has happened time and time and time again. Now this happens in the life of the individual. You can see some individuals that have become depraved almost as beasts. They haven't started like that. They haven't started like that. But they have become that in time as they acted against their conscience time after time after time so that they become, their conscience has become sealed. They become completely unsensitive to evil. They can rape, they can murder, they can kill and feel nothing. That's when God gives them over to their vile passions so that they destroy themselves but also sadly hurt others in the process too. And then our last phase is what we have termed a, a drift towards self-destruction or a vortex of self-destruction. Because you see, once we are driven by these vile passions uh, and there's no more control, there's no more restraint. You say, why is it that there's no more restraint? They, they don't feel any shame about anything anymore. Why is it taking place now? Because of what is Paul is telling us here. God is abandoning our society. That's why we ourselves pray, but God doesn't seem to intervene. Because he's judging uh, our countries, our, our civilizations. So Paul says towards the end, Speaking of 28, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, that is, to acknowledge God, God gave them over to a debased mind to do 
There you go. To do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness. Sexual immorality. Now, you know, (laughs) Paul puts that first. Uh, In fact, uh, he has already addressed this issue in the prior verses. As he spoke of sexual immorality, especially in terms of homosexuality, in terms, uh, in verses uh, 26 and 27. Uh, So even though, obviously, uh, the gospel must be addressed to all people, and we must love all people, and uh, including those who have these tendencies or these passions. Uh, We know that Paul preached the gospel to effeminate and homosexuals in in Corinth. (laughs) So, but see, one thing is to preach the gospel to them and to do it with love and compassion. And the other thing is to accept their, their lifestyle. They're two different things. And so the Bible says we, we must not do that because homosexuality is one of the main signs when, when it takes over, when it becomes rampant, when it's accepted like it was accepted in Rome or in Greece at certain times. That is one of the signs uh, that uh, our society is crumbling. There are no more restraints. That we're exchanging men with women and men with men. That our mind is being debased. That we're losing all control. Uh, the man is completely losing even a sense of his own identity. Of who I am. Of who I am. And so... Sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful this is not a long list this is not a long list if we should list all the type of evil that man has practiced through history we would have to have an encyclopedia here not just a couple of verses Paul is highlighting some of the worst and then these are uh, actually uh, types of sin But if you think of all the ramifications and the manifestations of evil, the picture is really really dark. So what Paul is saying, you see, he uses two times, filled and full. So he's speaking like the cup is overflowing. Uh, This is is running rampant. There's no more restraint. And the one thing that is very important is when Paul says again, uh, the the, the uh, implied in what Paul is saying is that this becomes a self-destructing society because all of these evils are done against one another. These are all forms of evil with which men and women hurt each other. 
This is an expression of hatred, of evil. Oh. And when that happens, means that God, man is no longer reflecting the image of God. That's not a God-like person. That's more like a devil-like person. And they reflect the image of their father, Jesus Christ said, in John chapter 8. And when we come to this place, and again, verse 32, really, you know, uh, tops it off when it says, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve those who practice them. When we see in our society that these types of evils are no longer condemned, even judicially, even by the law, but that they are sanctioned by the law, even protected by the law, so they are legalized crimes, as abortion is today, as a lot of different things are today, today more than ever in America, and today more than ever in Italy. When that happens, then then we're coming close to the collapse, the total collapse, the total ruin. We will self-destroy ourselves, or destroy ourselves in this vortex of evil. Uh, Ultimately, what Paul teaches us here is that there are laws not only in the physical realm of cause and effect, you know, in terms of science. There are laws also in the spiritual realm, cause and effect. The two things are, you know, related. That's why, that's exactly why these four phases with which Paul analyzes this Roman civilization at that point in history can be found in the history of any civilization that has come and that has gone and that has arisen and fallen throughout history. And our civilization is no different. You say you struggle as a Christian because you live in a world that you do not understand. You're sick and tired of it, you know, and I I feel the same way many times. This is not our home, for sure. And we get even angry with our politicians and uh, the blindness, the hardness, the callousness, the evil, the lies, the deception. They're able to fabricate anything. And uh, this has become more and more true in our days. Things are taking place in our days that uh, may be very faithful to, uh, to, to the destiny of this world. So we're living in difficult times. So one thing that can help us, even as a church, even individually and as a church, you need to ask yourself. Now, we saw civilizations are born, they develop, they reach a summit and then they begin to go down, decline and disintegrate. You need to ask yourself, at what point am I at in my civilization? You see, are we here? Is America a new country that's just being born? Oh no. <laughs> are we up here to the full development of the potentialities of this country? No. 
that's long gone. in many ways, I feel that time was around the time of the revolution. If you read the history of America, it seems after the, the, the revolution took place and the country began to prosper economically, especially with you know Jackson and under the presidency, then America's soul really began to change and become enamored with itself and with its power and with its beauty and its possibilities and with its, uh, you know, the manifest destiny of this great country. That can easily go to our head and lose sight of the God of the pilgrims <laughs> prior to the revolution. But so we're not, you're not here. I don't believe you're here. I think you are down here. You're towards the end. And that's why this very much looks like sunset and not like a sunrise. And when you see that, you say, well, I have to acknowledge it. The world is, at this point in history, as it is. I don't need to struggle anymore with it. I understood it, (laughs) but I must be active as a Christian. What am I to do in this situation? How can I best live at this time of history as I see everything is crumbling? Well, that can be the, the subject of our next time together. Amen.